Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Thank you very much. Uh, this is a, a concluding talk for a week uh, that I've had uh, under the auspices of uh, Danny Seabright's U.S. UAE Business Council, and I've had the uh, pleasure of speaking to uh, students and uh, faculty and uh, government officials and business uh, leaders in uh, Dubai and Sarja and uh, now here. I've been enormously impressed. Uh, this is not my first visit, but it's my first visit in a number of years and the changes that have occurred, not just in terms of buildings, but the intellectual and cultural, artistic and educational uh, and healthcare achievements are just stunning. Uh, you have a lot to be proud of here. It does have a special meaning for me. Uh, my uh, wonderful partner, Marianne Lewin, is here. Uh, Danny Seabright is here. And as uh, Nalda said, uh, my former White House staff member and the Carter White House, Orrin Kramer's wife, and my very dear late friend, Hillary Ballou, had a major impact in setting this whole NYU campus up. Uh, I also know that the student body here is as select as any in the world in terms of your SAT scores, your achievements, the screening that is done. You're the most international university anywhere in the world. So it's highly appropriate for me to finish uh, my week here by uh, having the opportunity to talk to you. Rather than talk uh, solely about my book, I wanna talk about more contemporary issues and then weave in some of the experiences uh, that I've had in various administrations, including my book. Uh, and so let me start by talking about the Middle East uh, and the most current uh, activity, which was the Israeli election. I go to Israel two, three times a year, and it is quite stunning to think that a sitting prime minister who has had three indictments against them by his own attorney general, uh, could win an election against three decorated generals who were heading the opposition. Why is this the case? I think it's several reasons which are important for you to understand because Israel is a major player and one country with whom, uh, on a quiet basis, the UAE is sharing a lot of intelligence uh, on common threats like Iran. One is the simple demographics. Israel is becoming a more ultra-Orthodox religious country. Uh, and when you add that to a million Russian uh, immigrants who have come, the settlers and uh, conservative nationalists, you have a coalition that is powered uh, Bibi Netanyahu to three victories. There's a real white rightward tilt to the country. Uh, and I think what in the end overwhelmed all the negatives was peace and security. Uh, this is a very prosperous country, and it is a relatively safe country given the neighborhood. And people simply didn't want 
to shift their allegiance at a time when Syria is in civil war, when Hezbollah has 100,000 rockets pointed at it, when Hamas is still a, a major threat, and when Iran is looming. I'll talk about that more in a moment because it involves the UAE directly. Uh, even for an opposition headed by three decorated generals. What does this mean for the region? What does it mean for the Middle East peace process in which I have been directly involved for several decades? I work with President Carter on Middle East issues. Uh, his success at Camp David over 13 days and nights was really quite stunning. It is the greatest act of presidential personal diplomacy in American history, achieving an agreement between two enemies who had fought five wars between 1948 and 1973. And it was done through an incredible combination of tenacity, vision, courage. He personally drafted over 22 peace agreements at Camp David and negotiated them separately with Prime Minister Begin of Israel and Anwar Sadat of Egypt because we put them together the first night and it was like two scorpions in a bottle. Uh, it was an amazing act of presidential diplomacy, uh, added to by two personal events. One, the first Sunday of the 13 days, he took Sadat and Begin to Camp David, from Camp David to the Gettysburg battlefield to drive home. This was the battlefield where the, one of the climactic Civil War battles was fought to drive home that five wars was enough. Sadat was a military man. He knew all the mistakes that the Southern troops had made, a little uncomfortable for Carter as a Southern president. And Begin was anything but a general, but was a scholar of Lincoln and on the spot gave the uh, Gettysburg Address of, uh, of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, one last personal anecdote sealed what seemed to be a fruitless effort after 13 days where the parties still were not together. Begin said he was leaving. He couldn't make any more compromises. And Carter took a, a personal tack of having eight copies of photographs of the three of them, Sadat Begin and himself, autographed personally to each of Begin's eight grandchildren. He handed it to Begin at his cabin, heard Begin vocalize the names of each. Tears came to his eyes. He put his bags down and said, I'll make one last try. Here we are 40 years later. The treaty was signed almost exactly 40 years later. It's very crucial to Israel's security, to Egypt's security, to the security of the region and the United States. Now, the question is, what does the election mean to this peace process? Because the peace process has very much stalled. Uh, this is a personal tragedy, one in which I've been involved in the Clinton administration as well. In 2000, July of 2000, I met Yasser Arafat in Ramallah, the last of six negotiations I had with him. And before I started, he said, Mr. Secretary, tell President Clinton I'm not prepared to accept his invitation to the second Camp David Accord with Ehud Barak, Clinton, and himself. And I said, Mr. Chairman, why? He said, I'm not willing to make the compromises necessary. Clinton invited him anyway. Barak offered 95% of the West Bank, East Jerusalem as a capital, and 50,000 refugees coming back. Arafat rejected it, started the Second Intifada. 2008, a similar offer by Olmert, rejected by President Abbas, the current president of the Palestinian Authority. So where do we go from here? 
I believe very, very strongly in a two-state solution. A two-state solution is much more difficult to achieve now because there's been a vacuum in which conservative governments, in particular Netanyahu's, have filled it in with settlements. When Carter left office, there were 17,000 settlers in the West Bank. Now there are 400,000, and it makes it much more difficult to achieve a two-state solution. There will be a peace plan by the Trump administration shortly after the government of Israel is formed. They'll be coming to this region, Jared Kushner, his son-in-law, seeking money from the UAE for the economic dimensions of the peace process. But one thing I learned from Camp David and from seeing Carter negotiate, and that is you only achieve progress in negotiations, and particularly in the Middle East, if both parties trust you. In this case, Egypt and Israel did. With what's happened unilaterally by Israel, and I don't have to recount all of those, endorsed by the administration, the question is whether the trust that's essential on both sides will be there. I think the plan will be very light on politics. I doubt that there'll even be an endorsement of a two-state solution. It'll be more heavily economic, useful infrastructure, water, electricity for the Palestinians, but very little, I think, on the political side. And this itself reflects a major change in this region. Emphasized by your own Minister of State Affairs, Gargash, as I was boarding the plane to come here. And that is the Palestinians have been put to the side and the focus of all the Sunni states, the Gulf states, Egypt, Jordan, is on Iran. It's a classic case of the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And you're seeing the kind of cooperation, even absent a peace agreement with the Palestinians that would have been unthinkable only a few years ago. The sharing of intelligence, Bibi going to Netanyahu going to Oman publicly, and Gargash saying, and I'm quoting him almost exactly, I saw it just as I was boarding the plane from Washington to come here, and he said, we should have been talking to Israel 70 years ago. Now, he said, a Palestinian state is not likely to succeed. It would only be a rump state on a small amount of territory. The only issue, he said, and I'm quoting him, not me, is whether or not the Palestinians will have lesser or greater rights within Israel. A quite remarkable statement, not contradicted by the UAE UAE government. Now, let me talk also in the Middle East in this respect. One of the reasons that President Carter devoted so much energy to the Middle East peace process, which was politically a loser for him at home, because he had to really butt heads with uh, the Israeli prime minister, was that we were engaged in a Cold War with the Soviet Union. He saw it, and rightly so, as a way of solidifying U.S. support. And from that day until quite recently, the U.S. has been an indispensable party to Middle East stability and where there's instability to helping our allies. I'm sad to say that I think that's changing and that our country, my country, is losing influence. Let me give you a couple of examples and then show you what the implications are for you. First, this didn't start with Donald Trump. Obama himself on Syria, and I was in his administration, I think made mistakes. Two 
red lines on chemical weapons, military action if it's used. It didn't occur after they were used. We didn't give the kind of support to the anti-Assad forces that might have deposed him early on before the Russians came in. And now President Trump has announced a withdrawal of U.S. troops from Afghanistan, from Iraq, and from Syria. In politics, in geopolitics, like in physics, where there's a vacuum, somebody's going to fill it. Nature abhors a vacuum, so does politics. So what do we have as a result of this withdrawal, this statement basically that we're pulling back from your region? We have Russia with its first warm water port in Syria. We have Iran building permanent missile sites in Syria. We have Russia developing a military relationship of sales, which would be unthinkable to Saudi Arabia and to Egypt. We have China with their Belt and Road Initiative, putting hundreds of billions of dollars into the region. And your oil now is not going west because in part what Carter did, my help in our energy policy, where we are now the number one producer of oil and gas in the world. When we came into office in 1977, we were importing over 50% of our oil from OPEC. Now we're exporting oil and natural gas. And as a result, you and the UAE and the Saudis are exporting oil east to China, to India, and not west. And that also means less of an involvement by the U.S. I also want to give you a perspective on how the U.S. public, not myself, view this, because I think it's a serious mistake for us to withdraw from these countries. But the public says, we have been in Afghanistan for 17 years. It's the longest standing U.S. war in American history. We've had 2,700 soldiers killed, tens of thousands seriously injured, a trillion dollars of expense, and what do we have to show for it? The Taliban is still as strong as it was years ago. So there's a sort of war weariness that cuts across party lines. Again, I think this is very serious because Countries like China and Russia play a very long game. And when there's a signal that we're less involved, others again are going to fill the void. Now, let me go to the U.S.-UAE relationship. At almost every level, it's remarkably healthy. $24 billion trade relationship, $40 billion mutual investment relationship, 5,000 U.S. soldiers here, two major facilities, an air base and a naval base, which is the most frequently used port of call by our Navy outside of the United States anywhere else. You have been on our side, soldier for soldier, in the Balkans, in Somalia, in Afghanistan. You're there when we need you. Contrast that with other countries in the region, including some of your neighbors. So economically, militarily, your large purchases of U.S. products, but there is a cloud on the horizon, and I wouldn't be candid if I didn't discuss it, and that is Yemen. What happened again shortly before I left 
shows what happens when I leave Washington. Uh, what happened when I left is the Senate and House agreed on a resolution which now goes to the president, ending all U.S. military assistance to the UAE and to Saudi Arabia related to Yemen. Now, this is really a remarkable development. Seven Republican senators bucked their president. Some of the most conservative pro-Trump members of Congress of the House bucked their president to support this. He'll veto it, but it's a sign of the times. It's a sign that the Yemen issue is a cloud and all the wonderful things that I've seen, all the modernity, all the artificial intelligence, all the empowerment of women, all the educational attainments symbolized by where we are here or the healthcare attainments as we saw the Cleveland Clinic yesterday, all the assistance that you give to us is lost in the fog of Yemen. You've sort of been hooked by the uh, hip to Saudi Arabia. And the anger at Saudi Arabia over Khashoggi is one of the real reasons for this. For sure, there's a humanitarian crisis. It's shown on the press. But somebody doesn't ask, well, how about the Iranians and the Houthis? What happens if we withdraw? What happens to Yemen then? So this is a serious cloud on the horizon. It has to be taken into account. And it's very important for all of us, for the companies that belong to Danny Seabright's U.S. UAE Business Council, all of those who support a very strong UAE-U.S. relationship to try to break through this fog and say, yes, this is a problem. It's a humanitarian crisis. It has more than one cause. And in fact, the initiation is Iran. And we've got to be able to tell the positive stories, which are remarkable about what the UAE has done. I mean, you're doing things, for example, on the impact of artificial intelligence that we could only wish we were doing. Okay, now, let me go from there to China. I touched on this by talking about vacuum being filled by others. So let me talk about the U.S.-China relationship because the way in which this relationship unfolds between the largest and second largest economies and militaries in the world will speak volumes about the kind of world that you, particularly your students and your children, will live in. Now, I was present at the creation, if I can put it that way, of the diplomatic relationship between the U.S. and the People's Republic. Nixon and Kissinger started it by the outreach to China, the Shanghai communique, but they didn't establish diplomatic relations with China because there was a very powerful Taiwan lobby, anti-communist lobby in the Republican Party. Nixon felt he couldn't go any further. We did. We severed relations with China. We established a new cultural and defense relationship, which exists today, and we recognized and restored after 40 years from World War II, diplomatic relations with China. So I'm in the cabinet room with Deng Xiaoping, and he says to President Carter, thank you for diplomatic relations. What we really need is the lowest tariff levels that we can uh, get so we can trade more with you. I know he said that there's a law that restricts those low tariffs for countries that bar 
emigration, but we, that's aimed at the Soviet Union. We don't bar Chinese immigrants. And he takes a little White House notepad, White House Washington, and a pencil pushes it over to the president and says, write on here the number of Chinese you'd like us to send you each year. A million? Ten million? And Carter laughs and says, I'll tell you what, I, we'll take 10 million Chinese a year if you'll take 10,000 American journalists. Neither had to do, fill that. But here's the important thing. Between then and now, there's been a radical change in China's attitude. From 1970s, when all of this started, and Deng Xiaoping began to reform the Chinese economy, every Chinese president focused on one thing solely, and that was reforming their domestic economy and creating a huge middle class in China. For China, their model of state-controlled capitalism has been a brilliant success. Hundreds of millions, hundreds of millions of people have been taken out of poverty and made into the middle class. I mean, we see them all over. We have Chinese students here. We started the first student exchanges. When Marion and I were at the Dubai Museum, you see hundreds of Chinese tourists who would not have been there 10 years ago because they couldn't afford it. But here's what's changed under President Xi. China's now not just satisfied with being a major economy, perhaps the leading biggest economy within 10 years. They also want to be a great global power, equal to and perhaps even exceeding the United States. What are the examples of that, which you wouldn't have seen, I assure you, just five or six years ago? First, mammoth increases in defense spending, fivefold over the last six or seven years, very sophisticated military spending. Second, you have, in addition to that, the uh, effort at the penetration of the whole world, and largely Asia, and even Europe, with the so-called Belt and Road Initiative. Talking about now a trillion dollars of low-cost loans, and they're very strategic. They will, for example, build a port in an African country that can be then used to serve their warships. That's a port that that country couldn't afford, they provide loans and potentially indebt the country. There are 750,000 Chinese workers in Africa. They largely employ their own. And yet they extend their influence tremendously by the Belt and Road Initiative. A third example is that the South China Sea. I served during the Obama administration in a variety of positions, but I was on the Defense Policy Board, and we got a briefing for two days on the South China Sea. So just look at your map. The South China Sea is supposed to be an international body of water on which large parts of the Asian continent abide. There are three sets of coral reefs which China has built 
out and into military facilities, runways for their planes, for example. And they've claimed a 14-mile nautical mile jurisdiction as if they had sovereignty over those areas. We recommended on our policy board to Obama that he have U.S. warships go by that area to show that we believe they're international waters. Trump has continued it. But it's a sign, again, of their extension of power. And they've also used soft power. They have so-called Confucius Institutes on American campuses. They fund chairs in a variety of studies. This is a highly sophisticated effort. And one last area, which is certainly something, I mean, I just was taken by one of uh, your, your wonderful uh, professors into your science uh, lab. They are determined, and it's their right to do it, to be the leaders in the 5G technologies of the future. Artificial intelligence, the Internet of Things, sensors, autonomous vehicles, and they're going to achieve that any way they can, by indigenous research, by theft of our intellectual property, by forced technology transfers, if you're going to invest in China, by requirements of joint ventures if you're going to invest there. And while I would have done it very differently than President Trump, I would have engaged our Japanese and European allies who suffer the same problems. He's taken off after them with high tariffs. There will be, within four weeks, in my opinion, an agreement on trade with China agreeing, agreeing to increased purchases of U.S. goods. And, in addition, at least the new law says no more forced transfers, no more technology transfer. You can come on your own. We'll see the issue now is the enforcement mechanism and how that will work and what happens to the existing tariffs. But there will be agreement, and Trump, in his inevitable way, will say it's the greatest agreement in world history. Now, the UAE gets caught up in the middle of this because you have a long-term relationship with Huawei. And Huawei wants to be the supplier of your 5G networks. And the White House says, oh, no. That's a real problem. That means China will get inside your system. Facial recognition. You ever go to Beijing? Facial, when you come in the terminal, you will be there for life. They know where every one of their citizens is. They track them in facial recognition. So your government has said, okay, we'll have second thoughts about this. But I'm not sure that will be successful because there's no U.S. competitor. The only competitor is Ericsson, which is not a U.S. company, and they're years behind China. And so as we learned from a briefing today uh, at uh, your, one of your think tanks at Mubadala Funds, uh, the UAE can't wait that long. The UAE wants to be at the forefront for the region, for itself, of these new 5G technologies. So what we're seeing now is really the classic historical situation going back to Sparta and Athens of a rising power clashing with an established power. And the way in which that is negotiated is critically important. It's very unique. In the, in the old Cold War days, when 
I was in the White House, for example. We knew the Soviet Union was our enemy. There was no trade of any consequence. We had nuclear arms facing each other, troops on either side of the German border. The relationship with China is infinitely more nuanced and complex. They're at once a competitor, and yet they're at once intermeshed in our economy. We have a $600 billion relationship with China on trade. They hold more of our sovereign foreign debt than any other country. I mean, I'm the only person in the world, I'm sure, still using a BlackBerry, so I won't use that as an example. You'll all laugh at me and think I'm a fossil of the 20th century. But I do actually have an iPhone. So people say, well, you know, this is made by China. It's a Foxcroft. No, it's assembled in China. Only 10% of the value comes from China. There are five or six countries that have products here. We have an integrated global economy. And that gives me confidence that as difficult and tension-ridden as this U.S.-China relationship will be, as much as you're caught in the middle, it won't, in the end, lead to armed conflict because everyone would be shooting themselves in the foot. There would be no iPhones sold. There would be no products going two ways, which we all are dependent on. And that's a good thing. So, yes, there are going to be tensions, but I think, in the end, we will work them out. We don't want China to be seen, at least I don't, as an ultimate enemy. I'll close with Trump and the 2020 election. So Trump is a transformative president and by his own terms, a disruptive president. That's not my term. That's his term and his advisors. He wants to disrupt the established order and he's doing a pretty good job of disrupting it. He has transformed his Republican Party from a traditionally free trade internationalist party into a protectionist, nationalist, populist party. He's transformed our foreign policy by withdrawing from four or five major agreements that we signed, previous presidents signed, and he decides he doesn't like it, so he pulls out. The Trans-Pacific Partnership was going to be our vehicle to have a counter-influence in Asia against China. He pulls out. What's the result? The other 11 countries signed their own agreement without us. Without us. He's a a transformative president in polarizing the United States of America in ways we haven't seen before. Pitting one group against the other. Anti-immigrant, anti-Muslim, anti-African-American. It's a very, very significant thing to understand. Having said that, Here are the positives that Trump will have going into the 2020 election. Number one, the economy. We have a Goldilocks economy right now. High growth, low unemployment, low inflation, low interest rates, the beginning of a rise in wages for a historic income inequality we've had for 30 years. I, I can give you details about it, but the bottom line is 
most determinative factor in a president's re-election is the state of the economy. It will slow down somewhat in 2019 and 2020. It won't be 3%, it'll be 2%. No one force forecasts a recession. That's a huge advantage for him. Second, he'll have a united Republican Party. It's amazing. 90% of self-identified Republicans say they support him. He won't have a divisive primary as we faced, and I describe in my book, as we faced uh, with Ted Kennedy, as Ford, whom we beat in 76, faced with Ronald Reagan. He'll have a united party. Third, he'll have an enormous war chest. I mean, we're talking about billions and billions of dollars that will be spent on advertising. And so, as a result, he has all of those advantages, and he will have a very loyal base of support. Well, having said that, should I just stop now and say he's going to win? The answer is no, because with all of these advantages, with this remarkable economy, and I looked at the polls literally just before, I wanted to make sure I had the latest ones just before I got on the, on the plane. I looked at the five major polls. His approval rating is between 39 and 42 percent, and his disapproval rating between 52 and 57 percent. I mean, with all of the positive in the economy, it should be 55, 60 percent approval. And that disapproval approval ratio has been there from the first day he's been in office. It doesn't change with the Mueller report, it doesn't change with the rain, with the sun, it doesn't change with events. It stays stuck there because he's such a polarizing figure. And therefore, his election is not a certainty. His party suffered significant losses at the midterm election. Now, the unknown is who he's going to run against. We have a binary choice. It's not a referendum like Brexit. Maybe I shouldn't use that example. It's not a referendum on Donald Trump. It's a referendum on Trump versus Mr. or Miss X. So the question is the Democratic Party. And here, in two paragraphs, and then I'll close. I went, I'm sort of inspired now by this uh, science lab that I saw. So in physics, nature abhors a vacuum. But also, in physics, Isaac Newton said, for every reaction, there's an equal and opposite counter-reaction. So as Trump has pulled the Republican Party far to the right and captured a populist movement which goes everywhere from Brazil to Italy to Germany to Sweden and places in between, the Democratic Party is going to the left, leaving the middle feeling abandoned. And that's where the election will be determined. If we nominate a candidate who only appeals to the left, Medicare for all, the Green Bill of Rights, reparations for slavery, and all of those sorts of things, then Trump, by default, will win. If, on the other hand, the, Rep the Democrats can elect a moderate candidate who can get the nomination with all the activists on the left and appeal to the suburban, college-educated people in the United States, then Trump will lose. And this is going to be a very fascinating thing to see. I just want to close with one other personal note on 
a perspective on the United States. We are an extraordinarily polarized country at this point. We're in a contest with China, not just on all the things I mentioned, but on governance. We think our democratic model is great. But when you look at Brexit, with the fact that we close our government for 32 days because we couldn't agree on a funding, when you look at the dysfunction in our Congress, and China says, well, look, we push a button and things happen. We've got to reform our system, and we can't do it if there's not a moderate middle. Congressmen and senators who are willing to go across party lines to make compromises, that's not happening now, and it has to for us to be successful. And for us to be successful, it means you can be successful. With all of the diminution and influence, the United States is still important in this region and to you. So I want to close and take your questions by simply saying, I come back, will come back at uh, 2 a.m. flight uh, on Emirates Airlines tonight with, and I think Marion shares the same, with an enormous appreciation for a country of 10 million people that has moved so rapidly in so many areas. I mean, it's a beautiful and wonderful story to tell. I have nothing but the fondest of memories and recollections, which I'll take back, not just as hazy dreams, but try to transfer into getting people in the United States and members of Congress and uh, leaders uh, in my party to understand uh, what this country has done and how important it is to us. So with that, I'll be glad to take your questions and thank you for coming. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute.